the time of the wilderness wandering of the Israelites was over. It was time now to cross over the Jordan and spy out the land. Moses and Aaron are dead. Joshua and Caleb have taken over as the leaders of God's people. Joshua sends a couple of fellows out, maybe more than that, but he sent some men out and they were to spy out the land as well as the city of Jericho, which was just over the river. I don't know how long it had been since these fellows had gotten there. I don't know how extensive their espionage was, but at some point they found themselves in the house of a woman whose name was Rahab. And the Bible speaks of Rahab as Rahab the harlot. Now this title was normally reserved for an immoral woman, as I'm sure you all realize. But probably this woman was no longer practicing that sinful occupation. However, as is often the case, a scar that we get from having committed a sin early on may continue with us for a long time. I do not believe that these men went to her house for any uh, ungodly purpose. In fact, I believe that it was God's providence that put them there. And I'll try to explain that if I don't forget it in a minute. But while these men were at the house of Rahab, and the Bible says that her house was on the town wall. Now, archaeologists tell us that the city of Jericho was a mighty walled city in the ancient world. The wall was great enough that supposedly, according to archaeologists, it appeared to have been wide enough for two chariots to have passed abreast of each other on the top of it. So it wasn't just a fence that was built around the city, but a mighty wall. And houses were built on the edge of this, perhaps hanging off of the edge, and Rahab's was one of those. While the, these men were at her house, somehow word leaked out. And the king of Jericho, which, you know, we talk about kings today, he wasn't a king uh, like the king of England or the king of France, but more like a mayor would be. He was a, was a, a politically, a child, a politically uh, uh, competent man, but did not have the power that a king in some cases might have had. But the king of Jericho heard about that, and he sent a message to Rahab to send those men out uh, because she, uh, they said, uh, he said, they'd be here to spy out the, uh, the, the land and the city. Rahab had figured it all out. You see, she had heard about the uh, exploits of Israel. She knew how that one city after the other had been falling to them because God was blessing them. They were not going to lose. God never needs numbers. He only needs dedication and obedience and the win is absolutely guaranteed. And so one land and one city and one nation after the other had been falling before them. In fact, she told them, our hearts have failed or melted within us when we heard what you did to this one and that one and the other one. And so she said, I'm gonna make a deal with you. I'm gonna hide you and I'm gonna keep you from being caught. But I want you to promise me that when Israel comes to take the city, that my father's house will be saved and will be all right. She had no doubt that, is, that uh, Jericho would fall. She just wasn't sure when it would happen. But she knew if God's people came and besieged the city, that the city would fall. 
And so they made a deal with her. They said, you take this piece of scarlet line. Apparently she had some red rope that she had there in the house. And she was going to let that out of a window. And they were going to climb down the outside of that, uh, of that wall. She hid them underneath some stalks of flax on the roof of the house when the soldiers came, and she told, them a, she told them a story. She said, yes, there were some men that came in to me tonight, but I don't know where they came from, and I don't know where they went. But if you will pursue after them quickly down by the ford, that is, speaking of the river ford, thou shalt overtake them. And so they left. Now, one of the reasons that I think those men probably went to her house was that God knew that this was going to take place. And might I suggest to you there perhaps was no one else in all the city of Jericho who could have told such a tale and had it believed as she did. You ever thought about that? Who else could say, yeah, I had company tonight, but I don't know where they came from. I don't know who they were, and I don't know where they were going. She was the perfect person to fit into this part of God's plan. There's no doubt that God was overseeing all of this because nearly everything that we're going to talk about today, from the Old Testament at least until we get to the New, was providential and prophetic in its, in its import. Well, they said, you take this piece of scarlet line that we're going to go down by and you bind that in the window. And it'll come to pass that when we come to take the land and the city, that that line will be seen. And they said, everyone that is in the house will be saved. Now, don't forget that, because the word house plays quite an important role when you're studying type and antitype or shadow and substance, as we're doing this morning. Everyone that is in the house that is marked with scarlet, they're going to be all right. We'll take responsibility for them, and if anything happens to them, their blood will be upon our head. On the other hand, if they get out of the house, then they're going to be responsible for themselves. And if something happens to them while they're out of the house, we're not responsible for what, for what happens to them. So they climbed down the red rope and made their way by a circuitous route back to the camp and gave the report back to Joshua and Caleb. Now all of you who are, have done very much reading in the Old Testament are aware of the fact that this is, in a sense, a, a passing over, as it were. It was an escape. It was a rescue, if you will. And, and interestingly enough, all that are in the house that is marked with scarlet were saved and rescued. That has to have an important part. If, you, if you're familiar, though, with the Old Testament, you're, you're bound to be aware of an incident that took place, very similar incident that took place, almost exactly 40 years earlier. And that was when Israel was getting ready to leave Egypt. God told Moses to go before uh, Pharaoh and ask that his people be released. You remember that? And one time after the other, Pharaoh would first say yes, then he would say no. And so a series of a number of plagues that I don't have time to go into were visited upon Egypt. The only one that I'm really concerned about is the last one. The very last plague that God sent was the plague of the death angel. And this is an important one because God had said, the time is going to come when I'm going to pass over the camp 
And so, when I come over the camp, every house that is not marked with the blood of the Passover lamb, come morning, the firstborn in that family, as well as the firstborn of all family-owned animals, will be dead. And so, in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, God gave instructions for the uh, killing of the Passover lamb. They were to kill that lamb in just a certain way. It had to be a young male uh, without blemish and so on. And then they were to take the blood of that animal and paint it on the doorpost and the lintels, that is on the top part and the side parts of the house. And so God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You know, we used to sing the old song, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And undoubtedly, many of us have sung that and never realized the import of those words. It was literally a passing over. And if you wonder why the, the lamb was referred to as the Passover lamb, it was because of that. It was a passing over. God passed over all of those houses that had the blood of the lamb and those that did not, death was the result. And the Bible tells us that uh, that night that even Pharaoh rolled out of bed with a cry of anguish because there was not a house in all of Egypt in which one was not dead. But over yonder in the little group of Goshen, the little area of Goshen, where God's people lived, strangely enough, no death over there because they had obeyed the command of God and painted the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. So here we have two cases. And in each case, those that were in the house that is marked with scarlet are safe, and those that are out of the house marked with scarlet are not safe. What we're dealing then with is a symbol or a type, if you will, of, of people being saved by the blood of Christ. Now, what we're talking about today and what I want to trace with you today is the idea of how the blood of Christ uh, began in, in, in prophecy, at least, even in the Old Testament. You'll notice that in, in all of these cases, the word house plays an important role. Now, all that are in the house that is marked with scarlet are safe. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, when he said, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I should tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground or support, if you will, of the truth. And so one just simply carries over to the other. Just as those in the house marked with scarlet and Rahab's day were saved, just as those that were in the house marked with the blood of the lamb, scarlet in color, I'm sure that's not an accident, in Moses' day were saved. So it is today, those that are in the house of God that is marked with scarlet, the blood of Jesus Christ purchased his church. When you're in the house of God marked with scarlet today, you are still safe and God is responsible for you. Nothing will happen to you as long as you remain faithful and stay in the house of God. So I wanna talk with you today about the blood of Christ and how it began literally in the very early chapters of the Old Testament. Remember reading there how that the Bible says that there came a time when Cain and Abel offered a sacrifice. Now this, this is kind of interesting to me and I'll try not to uh, take uh, too much time, but 
The Bible tells us that they offered a sacrifice. Cain was a tiller of the fields, or a farmer, while Abel was a keeper of sheep, or a shepherd. Now the scripture tells us nothing about, in the Genesis account, tells us nothing about there having been a command of God to do this. But we know there was. How do we know that? Because in the 11th chapter of, uh, of Hebrews, sometimes referred to as faith's honor roll, the Bible said, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than his brother Cain. How did he do it by faith? According to Romans 10 and 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so while we are not told the command, he could not have done it by faith except to have done it in response to a command of God, if you get my point. So God had commanded this, but notice what happens. Cain comes and offers a sacrifice that is a vegetable sacrifice. Well, what's wrong with that? It undoubtedly represented many, many hours of toil and sweat. If you've ever worked on a farm, you know what I'm talking about, or even a garden for that matter. And yet God did not accept that. But Cain, uh, Abel's sacrifice rather, was a sacrifice in which blood was found because Abel offered the fatlings of his flock. And the scripture plainly says that unto Cain God had no respect, but unto Abel's sacrifice he did. And Cain became very, very angry, very wroth, the Bible says. And God said to him, Why art thou wroth? Why hast thou countenance fallen? That's kind of amusing to me, pardon me for smiling, because there's many times when I've been preaching and I've noticed that the, that, that the countenance of some falls uh, when you talk about certain things. And if you're, if you're a public teacher, you know what I'm talking about. God knew that, that uh, Cain was angry because his countenance had fallen. He was pouting. And so God said, and listen to this, because this is the key to understanding it. God said, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? In other words, if you're obedient, won't you be accepted? But he said, if thou doest not well, that is, if you didn't obey me, sin lieth at the door. So there's the problem. Cain offers a sacrifice with no blood, and God doesn't accept it. And he said, sin is at the door. Abel offers a sacrifice that contains blood, which was a type or a figure of the blood of Jesus Christ that would later be uh, come to pass. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, that Jesus is our Passover, and the, the Old Testament as well as the Hebrew letter is replete with passages indicating that every time a sacrifice was killed, it was typical or a type, meaning that it brought to mind in God's mind the time when his own son would come and offer his blood on the cross. These are very, very uh, much intertwined. So that's obviously the reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. Now, the Bible tells us that even before that, that Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, you remember that? When they sinned, the scripture tells us that God took the skins of animals and clothed them. Now, one thing you're going to find, let me just interject this. One thing you're going to find when you study the scheme of redemption, and that's essentially what we're doing today, when you study the scheme of redemption, you're going to find always that it is the innocent who suffers for the guilty. 
without exception, without exception. It is the innocent who pays the price. It is the guilty who goes free. That's who we are today, isn't it? Romans 3.23 tells us that we're all guilty of sin and have all come short of the glory of God. Yet we sit here today expecting to go to heaven. Why? Because the innocent Lord or Christ suffered in our place. And Peter said, by his stripes are you healed. And so the, the innocent always suffers for the guilty. When you, and, and literally from the beginning of sin in the Garden of Eden, that has ever been the case. When those animals died so that God could take their skins and make clothing for Adam and Eve because they were naked, those animals had to give up their lives. They were innocent, but they died, and the guilty pair, Adam and Eve, went free. And such, such was the case even with Cain and Abel. Abel was the innocent party. But if you'll remember, Cain murdered him and killed him and was allowed to go on and live, though he was marked with some sort of a mark, so that he would be distinguished from the rest of the people from that time on. And so what we're looking at today is, is, is this. When you see the blood of, of Jesus Christ in its, in its infancy, in its prophetic form, when you look at this red line that uh, Rahab posted in her window, what you're seeing in that red line is a sign of a scheme of redemption from the beginning of sin in Genesis to its eventual and final eradication in the book of Revelation. It also always speaks of death as the inevitable result of sin. But interestingly enough, blood is also seen as the inevitable atonement for that sin. So while blood is shed in death, and death is the result of sin, blood is also the inevitable atonement for that sin. Well, let's begin right here at Cain and Abel's sacrifice and study the bloodline of Christ. As we begin to study in the Old Testament, over here in Exodus chapter 12, we come to the time where I mentioned a moment ago of the Passover. And remember that I told you that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 that Christ is our Passover. This means that there is a connection between the literal Passover in Exodus 12 and the Passover that we enjoy today. Now, in Exodus 12 and verse 13, God said, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Back up in verses 3 and 4, he said, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb. Now listen carefully. They shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Now, you're probably wondering where in the world I'm going. In Israel, there were many, many houses. But let's just suppose that this represents the households or houses in Israel. When it came time for the Passover, God commanded that every one of these house, houses would have a lamb. The only exception to that 
would be if your house was too small to complete the eating of the lamb. In that case, you could invite someone from your neighbor's house to come and help you eat it, but not one morsel of that lamb was allowed to leave your house. What's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is to show that the observation, if you will, of the Passover was congregational or within each and every household. Every household might contain two or three different generations, and still is such, uh, such is still the case uh, in many parts of the world. In the Philippines, for instance, uh, where I often go, uh, it is not uncommon to see two or three generations of the same family living in the same house, and the older ones taking care of the little ones as they grow up, and so on. And so this is the way that they observe the Passover on a yearly basis. Now, just as every house had a Passover, and every house had a lamb, when you understand that the house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, you can see that there is a connection between the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house in Exodus chapter 12. And just as every house has a lamb, which was a figure or a type of Jesus Christ, so every congregation today has the Lord's Supper. And that Lord's Supper allows us to remember who? We remember Jesus Christ. And who is he? He is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. Now, sometimes brethren say, not our brethren, but some brethren say, well, it is true that there is one cup but there's one cup for the whole world. They say the cup is the blood, and so there's one cup for the whole world. Number one, the Bible never says that the cup is the blood. It never says that. What it says is that Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. That's quite a difference than saying this cup is the blood. What Jesus told us was, that the cup was the new covenant or the agreement, if you will, ratified or set in force by his blood. Quite a difference in saying that it is the blood. There is the testament, but there is also the blood that set it in force. So I, ho I hope you can see the similarity. Sometimes brethren say, and you know, when you, when you, you think of the passage, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, 16, where Paul said, the bread, uh, the cup which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And the uh, brethren asked why that Paul, or how Paul, could write that to Corinth. He apparently was uh, perhaps in Ephesus when he wrote that. And uh, they say, how could he write something from Ephesus to Corinth and say, speak of the bread and the cup which we bless? There's only one way. And many of the scholars, such as W.E. Vine, will tell you that the word we there refers to we, the assembled. Well, I get that. We, the assembled in Ephesus, and we, the assembled in Corinth, and we, the assembled here in Nashville, and we, the assembled where I live in Fremont, California, we bless the cup, and we break the bread. And so, no, uh, you don't have one cup for the whole world. And I'm going to tell you something. If you make that argument, you need to understand that in order for your argument and the type from which it springs, right here in, a, in, in, in Exodus 12, if that argument has any credence, 
you're going to have to find some way to get one lamb for all of Israel if there's one cup for all the world. But no, every congregation in Israel had a Passover. Just as every congregation of the Lord's church has the Lord's Supper. It fits. And it's too good to be an accident. Only the mind of an infinite God could have conceived of that. Now, every time this animal was killed, it pictured the time when Jesus would come and die on the cross. That's why Jesus is said to be our Passover. Just as they were saved by that Passover, we are saved by ours. And so they're connected in type and antitype, though they were not the same thing. You continue to study this and you come over here to Joshua chapter 2, as we have already read, and you see that line that is hung in Rahab's window. And as I've told you, this represents, as it were, in typical language, in figurative language, a sign of the blood of Christ. It was not an accident, I'll promise you, that it was scarlet in color. It represented the blood of Christ, which was literally for the, uh, for the eradication of sin from the beginning to the end. You say, how could that be? Well, look at Hebrews 9 and verse 15. There the Apostle Paul said, and what a, what a powerful passage this is. He said, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Are you following me? He said, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Over here is the New Testament. That by means of death for the transgressions of the sins that were committed under the First Testament, they which are the call might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What does that mean? If you boil it all down, what Paul is teaching in Hebrews 9 and 15 is that when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, his blood not only goes forward to take care of our sins, but it also it goes back retrospective, if you will, to the past during a time when these things here could not really forgive sin. Remember that Paul said it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin? Well, that's why the blood of Christ has to also go back and cover that. They did all that they could do. It was a temporary fix, but finally the blood of Christ will cleanse their sins. What I'm telling you is that come the day of judgment, every person who is saved, no matter what year or what era of time he lived in, every person who is saved will ultimately be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, though he may have lived in an earlier time and been forgiven on a temporary or ceremonial basis until the real thing came along. Now let me talk with you a minute about the blood of Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, Paul said, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. There probably is no more beautiful subject in the New Testament than the subject of redemption. And it is also probably one of the least understood subjects. I think we all understand that redemption means somebody has been saved from their past sins. But let me explain maybe in a little greater depth what I understand it to be. Years ago, when my family and I were getting ready to leave Cincinnati, Ohio, and move back to California, 
We went down to, and I'm dating myself, some of you are not old enough to remember this, but we went down to the S&H Green Stamp store. Remember? Some of you remember. I can see you smiling. Used to, when you'd buy groceries or gas, they'd give you S&H green stamps, or sometimes blue chip stamps. And when we uh, would receive those stamps, we had the option, if we wanted to, to take those stamps back, paste them in a book. And when we got enough books, we could take those stamps down to the stamp store and get a piece of merchandise that we wanted or needed. Well, we, we had a piece of merchandise that we wanted to get. And I remember when we went down there with our few stamps, I remember going through the door, and to my amazement, it just kind of clicked like that. Over the door, it said, Redemption Center. I thought, Redemption Center? And I think for the first time, I understood redemption better than I ever had. Because you see, what we had was some old stamps that we had pasted in these books. They were totally useless to us. We didn't need those things. We didn't want those things. They were of no use to us until and unless they were redeemed by that company that put them out in the first place. And when they redeemed them, they would give in its place to us a piece of merchandise that we did need and want. Now here we are guilty of sin. And Jesus comes along and dies on the cross. We don't need those sins. We can't go to heaven with these sins. They're of absolutely no use to us. But Jesus comes and sheds his blood. And when we obey the gospel, those sins are redeemed. They're taken away from us. And in their place is given us the promise of eternal life. Now that's redemption. That's what it means. You get rid of something you can't use and get something you desperately need. And Paul says we are redeemed through his blood. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, and, and you'll notice that all the way across here, we've been talking about his blood. Blood, 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 everywhere is blood. It's always part of the redemption scheme, the innocent suffering for the guilty. But listen again, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, Paul wrote and said, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And what he means by saying according to the Scriptures, he's talking about all of those Old Testament passages that portray in type and antitype and in figurative language the coming of the Son of God. Did you know that David in the Psalms actually speaks, though he doesn't call him by name, but he speaks of Jesus and the fact that his hands are pierced with nails? Yes, sir. Absolutely. And Isaiah talks about how that he carried our burdens and bore our sins and our sorrows and, uh, and so on. All of that beautiful 53rd chapter of Isaiah was all prophetic. 700 plus years before Jesus ever came to the world, Isaiah wrote about him and what he would do for us. That's what Paul means when he says that he died according to the scriptures. He had to in order to fulfill the scriptures. In fact, the Bible plainly says that Jesus fulfilled all scripture. In 1 John 2 and 2, 
The book says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is very similar to atonement or reconciliation. And when Jesus died, he became the propitiation or the atonement, if you will, for our sins. Again, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, Peter said, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. It ought to make us feel a little more humble to realize that we can sit here today expecting to go to heaven because somebody came and took our whipping for us. Somebody redeemed us. All was to be lost, but we were redeemed. As the old preachers used to say, our all was in the devil's pawn shop, and we had no way to redeem it. But we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul said, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. An innocent individual, remember I told you that the innocent always suffers for the guilty? An innocent individual comes and dies on the cross. This individual knew no sin, but we who did no sin have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ because we obeyed the gospel. We have been baptized in water for the remission of sins and we've contacted his blood. That way, we are made the righteousness of God in him. But let me continue on. This bloodline goes right to the cross and then from the cross it begins in earnest. And we're over here now today in 2007 and we're enjoying the blessings of the blood of Christ still in 2007. There are only two things regarding the church that I'm aware of that deal with blood. One is when we are baptized into Christ, and the other is when we observe the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do momentarily, and we drink the cup of blessing. When you understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two things in the church that have one thing in the world to do with blood, can you understand why these two items are perhaps more often counterfeited and changed than anything else? You don't see the hand of the devil in that? Of course he's behind it. He wants you to be lost. And, and, and when you think about it, if Rahab had failed to post that line in her window, let me ask you a question. When Israel came to take Jericho, do you really believe her house would have been saved anyway? I don't. I don't believe they'd have been saved at all. And I believe we post that line in our window when we are baptized in water for the remission of sins. But what if she hadn't kept the line in the window? What if after she had put it up there and those men left, what if she took a look at that and thought, what in the world are the neighbors going to think of me with a piece of red rope tied up in my window? What if she had taken it out? Would the fact that she hung it and then took it out have resulted in their being saved? No. 
she had to keep it in the window because they had to see it when they came. And as I understand the type and anti-type, we, we post this line in our window of faith when we are baptized into Christ. But we keep it in our window when we observe in a scriptural manner the Lord's Supper. One loaf, one cup. Back here during this time, you read of the table of showbread. On the table of showbread, which contained 12 loaves of unleavened bread, do you remember that God decreed, I don't know why, but he decreed that those loaves be placed on that table in two rows of seven. What's wrong with three rows of four? I don't know. But I'll guarantee you one thing. I wouldn't have put three rows of four if he asked for two rows of six. God just doesn't deal with or deal well with men who change his word. Do you really believe that if he was that particular to specify the way the table was set then, that he is not also particular that the table is set according to the pattern now? All during the time of Moses' sojourn, he kept telling Moses when they were building the tabernacle, he said, see that thou do it according to the pattern. I don't mind to tell you. I am very pattern-oriented. I'm afraid of anything that differs from the pattern. Now, you know, there's a lot of things about this that we could say, but I've got to close. We used to sing a song, and, and part of the words went like this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away his stain. Some of you are recognizing the words of those songs. But the blood of Christ, ere since by faith I saw that stream, its flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. In closing, let me leave a true story with you. I told you one that was true last night. I'll tell you another one today that's true. During the time of the Mosaical Dispensation, and about the time that Israel was getting ready to leave Egypt, history records the story of a little girl. She was crippled, not able to walk, bedfast. And on the day that the lamb was to be killed and its blood painted on the doorpost, this little girl was very concerned about how the blood was being put on the house because she was the firstborn. She is the oldest. She kept asking all day, has the blood been painted on the house? And was told that it had been. But since she was bedfast, she couldn't go see. And when her father came in that afternoon, she asked him, and he assured her that it was. And she said, I want to see it. And finally, he just picked her up and carried her out there, and to his amazement, though the lamb had been killed, nobody had painted it on the door. And had it not been for her insistence, she would not have survived the night. The blood was hastily painted on the door. And then she lay back in comfort and peace. It's amazing to me that people today can just be a member of a church 
They don't know and they don't seem to care whether or not they're in the house that is marked with scarlet. They're unconcerned about that. I don't understand that. I wonder today, are you sure that you're in the house that is marked with scarlet? That's where salvation is promised. And it's not promised in any other. There wasn't another house in all of Jericho that was promised salvation. Do you realize that? I don't know how many thousands of houses there were, but there was only one that salvation was promised in. That in itself is a telling point. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.